Hi, I'm Yaz. I'm Mars. Come join us as we drive down into our favorite TV shows, music, and films. Sit back while we shift into the critical theories and messages behind these works. So, pull up, dweebs. Hey, y'all, and welcome to our first ever podcast. I'm Mars. I'm Yaz. And we hope y'all will stick with us while we discuss one of our favorite animated series today, The Legend of Korra. So if you haven't seen The Legend of Korra, what are you doing? It's a great show, great soundtrack, great storyline. It's on Netflix. It's on Nick. Definitely. I love this show. It's probably one of my favorites, too. Uh, just huge disclaimer, guys. Uh, Mars is the expert here. <laughs> totally calling Mars out. They read the comics, they religiously watch the show back to back. I'm also a fan, but I think Mars is just through the roof with the expertise. So we have completely different interpretations. Again, expertise and kind of sort of digs at these characters, which is totally fine. But I want you guys to just be prepared for the multiple perspectives that we're going to have at these characters and storylines. So for those of you who don't know, Legend of Korra debuted in April of 2012 and ran till 2016. Um, it was created by Brian Konietzko and Michael DeMonto under the Nickelodeon animations. The first two seasons were um, on TV, on Nick, but the last two were actually online. And the show faced heavy criticism, even today, and because it was often compared to the arguably perfect series Avatar, The Last Airbender. However, Yez and I have realized that Korra's story isn't a continuation of Aang's story, but rather a story on a new Avatar and how she adapts in this more modern world where arguably an Avatar is not as needed. So we won't get too into the limited budget or the plot holes of the story or the lack of support at Nickelodeon, but we will get more into the deeper side of Legend of Korra and what it has to offer. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important to notice too that um, how arguably like the Avatar isn't needed or is kind of like this weird force in like the modern world. And right now we're going to be really focusing on the complexities of the societal boundaries through the protagonist, antagonist, and the entire story concept. So the binaries we're going to really examine today are going to be materialism for spiritualism, good and evil, egoism, and altruism. So if you guys don't know those terms, Google's a thing. Please go look them up. They're going to be really cool to talk about. And we can really see these binaries throughout any characters and sort of this whole entire story development. And those characters we're going to be covering today are this combination of our favorites, the more intricate and a little bit developed characters. And in order, we're going to be talking about Korra, Lin, Varric, Amon, Zahir, and Kuvira. So when looking at these characters, we can implement the character alignment theory. This is a complex scale that shows where characters morally and ethically fall within. And in this episode, we're going to focus on the most notable nine moral alignments. And a little fun fact, this is actually popularized by the Dungeons & Dragons game, and I think it originated from there too. And we're choosing this scale in particular because it's super accurate and can easily be implemented through any person, fictional or real, and it's also a little nerdy and quirky and fits the podcast perfectly. So we're using this theory in the games, not in the games concept, but solely on the categories of each of these alignments. And these categories range from lawful good to chaotic evil, leaving true neutral in the middle. And lawful represents more right-leaning ideologies, whereas chaotic represents left. And again, guys, these are no way meant to be offensive or mean towards anyone with these ideologies, 
but they do represent each of the protagonists and antagonists from our perspectives. Right, and another disclaimer before we start on the characters and how they are presented in this show. I just want to point out that these characters are fictional and don't 100% translate to real life. We can compare them or relate them to real life to understand our analysis better, but they don't represent it all. The topics we cover on this podcast are solely on the characters, and the more political theories don't translate into our beliefs. We're just pointing that out there so people know that our favorite characters are on how they are written. Alright, so let's get started. So our first character is Korra. Korra, the new avatar after Aang. Uh, Who is she? She's a part of the Water Tribe. She is super talented. She She didn't master, but she learned to bend three elements right by the time she was like four yeah at a really early age super early age, which is pretty iconic i'm the avatar you gotta deal with it and her story is just in my opinion a lot more relatable from what she went through right i'm not saying ang's wasn't really good but i'm just saying that the way that the creators handled ang's story there was less dealing with trauma and more focusing on growth through bending while with Korra there was a lot of growth of character right character personality yeah I definitely agree yeah like life lessons and stuff so Korra season one when we meet her you know she's what people would consider a hothead and very stubborn but she was just very eager to get out to the real world and be what she was been told her entire life she was destined to be which is the avatar and Korra she was at first sheltered in a fort in the water tribe right she was there to train protected by the white lotus she was barely able to go out so it was just her her parents her masters and her polar bear dog because of course Cora would have a polar bear dog (laughs) um and uh, i love naga right naga's so cute (laughs) so cute so cute and when she finally goes out to the real world to republic city she gets into trouble the first couple hours she's there (laughs) she gets caught by the police (laughs) creating just like disturbing the peace basically while also upholding it which is where we see Cora's character um she doesn't really understand consequence she doesn't understand that her actions affect others she just gets right to it you know she jumps before she looks and that's kind of what her character is for the first two seasons from what we see yeah, I definitely agree. I like to think Cora as like, Cora is like me when I first went to college. I grew up in a little rural town in Arizona, so I had no idea really what big cities or the real world is. And I made some of my worst decisions between the time of me being a freshman in college and until I was like 19. Right. So I definitely see Cora. I think Cora is kind of like this, this gifted student and she has that really almost burdensome title to her because she's like has so much power at such a young age and she just doesn't know what to do with it right and and that makes her so relatable and real in so many ways yeah and yeah and then we see kind of like what how she grows not out of it but like evolves into someone who understands more um by the time she hits like season three right she goes through a lot of it in season two when she's still very stubborn and she loses her past lives because of it right she doesn't listen to anyone yeah it's her way or the highway and she makes her decisions for herself and um and i believe that also kind of comes from 
having been her entire life in that fort isolated and having everyone else make decisions for her right so you can't really blame yeah, where that stubbornness sure. comes from because in season two she's like no i make my decisions it's my destiny yeah but like then, she can't help it right and then she trusts someone that well came out of she it's family of course you're gonna trust family right you but she trusts Unalak and she ends up paying the price by losing the past Avatar lives, yep. which is crazy. And, you know, it really beats her up. She feels like she's failed. And season three, that's kind of what it's about. You know, she faces a lot of self-guilt and she's willing to sacrifice herself no matter if it means she gets hurt or maybe even possibly dies. But she thinks that, you know, it's her, her destiny to sacrifice yeah, herself her as the Avatar. Almost. But like, no, ma'am, there's a difference. The Avatar is meant to bring <laughs> balance, not sacrifice themselves. There's balance a difference, the world, Cora. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, yeah. we see her, you know, uh, evolve in that way and be more precautionary um, with life and not trust people so easily and that her actions have consequences. She's kind of, she kind of reminds me of a gifted student, you know, right? I, if you don't know what a gifted student yeah, is, for sure. a gifted student is, um, it's like a program that you're in in school and you're, you're thought to be like, yeah, right, I, I a, was gifted a gifted kid. kid. <laughs> I was a gifted kid too. And you're thought to be like, you're super smart. We have so much expectations for you. You're going to succeed in life. So we're going to keep you isolated from the rest and, you know, put you through this rigorous uh -huh, program. Um, but not give you any practical tools for life. You don't know how to apply what you know in life. And Honestly, it's, yeah. It's so frustrating. We're still dealing with those repercussions today. Um, but that's kind of what Cora is a good example of. Um, she's isolated from the world and she's expected to understand it. You know, she has this gift and they keep it away and shielded for a long time. And she's told that her only purpose is to bring balance and master the four elements. So when she fails at that, when she fails at keeping the peace, at defeating her enemies alone, she beats herself up and literally tears herself apart. But we can see how that teaches her and how she grows so much, even if it required her nearly dying. <laughs> yeah, for hindering so much. Yeah, yeah it's no. like... She was really beat up. Like, as I was, I rewatched, I binged <laughs> Legend of Gore right before we were recording this. And yeah, she goes through a lot. Yeah. Like, how much in, and again, we, I'm using in comparison to Aang because that's the only avatar we really know of, or at least I know of. Right. So it's like, you see, like, she gets, she loses her spiritual side, which is like the whole entire point of the avatar is to, like, have this strong spiritual connection. She loses that in what book, and sorry, season two. And then in season three, she gets, you know, terribly poisoned by the year. And now in season four, she's like living with that trauma. And it's, you know, she has so much responsibility in a world which everybody really sees the Avatar as like this social status. So, you know, it's like when you're like the best player in the team right. and you lose, it's like, okay, cool. So you're not that great, right? Yeah. And I, I can't even imagine how she felt. Yeah, no. And the crazy thing too is that she, like since the beginning, she never even was super in touch with her spiritual side, right? I don't even think she talked to her past yeah, selves until Aang so. appeared because she lost her bending, right? Um, I think he's the one who tells her we open ourselves to change when we hit our lowest point, right? Yeah, so the lowest point. She gets yeah. her bending back, but 
that scene actually is very interesting because in that scene where she goes up to the cliff and she cries, a lot of people assume that she wanted to kill herself. That she was going to, yeah, jump off. And I'm just like, it makes a lot of sense because she, it's, again, it goes back to the idea how, like, how Korra takes being the Avatar so personally. And I think that's, like, she's so reminiscent of, like, teenagers nowadays of how they're given this title, they're given this fancy rank, and, you know, in education systems, too. And then once it, like, once you do a bad thing or once, you know, don't turn in homework when you're in fifth grade, it's, like, the end of the world. Like, I can't believe that I did a mistake. Right. And I think Korra is just so perfectly um annoying i guess and in such like the best way though it's like you're supposed to be you know kind of anchored at what she does you're supposed to not agree with her because it's she's just so real and that's right. what makes her perfect yeah no and i like how it can relate to anyone really at any point in your life especially like us college students right when you leave college, yeah. you're expected to know what to do. But a lot of my friends who've graduated or a lot of people I've known who've graduated sometimes don't really know what to do. Like, how am I supposed to find a job? How am I? What am I supposed yeah. to do after school? You know, but it's because we spend our entire time in school. Um, and it's very similar to like Cora. It's like, now I'm the avatar. What do I do? You know, and that's one of yeah, her biggest fears definitely. she deals with. But that's why I love season four so much, especially when she meets Toph biggest change it's the first time she gets super in touch with her spiritual side right she learns how to connect with the spirits and also uh you know look through the spirit vines she touches the spirit vines and she can see everything which i think is super super cool and we see her learn uh different lessons different things like your your actions have consequences and if you can't deal with the consequences don't do those actions or that only you can help yourself right no one's gonna hold your hand through Mm -hmm. it and that you know you don't have to put yourself above i mean you don't have to put everyone above your own self right like you deserve happiness (laughs) korasami you deserve happiness korasami your whole life is not just being the avatar yeah i think korra's biggest redemption too was season four and like when Korra finally, you know, I think we see Korra as this person who doesn't know when to take her advice. She doesn't know when to take her teacher's advice. She's caught in the middle. And numerous times when she takes her own advice, it leads to bad things. But she finally finds this peace in herself and her intuition. And that her intuition leads her into Toph's forest. It leads her to see Toph. And that is when she goes she reconnects with herself she conquers this kind of ptsd and her poisoning and she realizes that i think one of my favorite quotes is by zahir we'll totally get into zahir later he tells cora something along the lines that like you know i think that your trauma made you stronger and it really shows when she goes and she's able to um she's the one that bends um the poison out of her right yeah she she's bends a, her own poison yeah see and it's just like exactly it's like she's faced with so much burdens and she finally goes and just becomes this amazing character in season four like i feel like cora herself like the situations she went through she put herself in these situations as much as they came to her you know but she needed these to learn um to learn everything she did learn she's a well-written character her development was very well written for sure i also really love cora i think she's just an amazing yeah so i don't understand character. why she gets so much hate you know just yeah i it's i i think she gets hate because as what i said is she she's like 
your average teenage kid and it's ironic I just turned 20 but I look back and if I were to see me as a 17 year old I'd probably get pretty like annoyed like I when I look at high schoolers I'm like that's disgusting (laughs) and that's why people just don't like Cora but people need to understand that you need to go through that phase of life right in order to become a good person. You don't have to nearly die, but you definitely have yeah, to learn not, your lessons. Please don't die. <laughs> please don't do that. Yeah. yeah, I feel like people just don't like what they relate to the most. Usually what definitely. we're attracted to is what we want to be like, right? But yeah. what we, what reminds us of ourselves and maybe what we've been through or the lessons we haven't learned yet and need to is what we don't like the most. So I feel like that's why Cora gets so much hate. And also because she's a woman. We tend to expect women, we expect more from women than men. So, of course, she's going to be bashed on the most. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, So, if we look at these nine alignment charts, where would you place Korra? Depending on how she evolves as well. It doesn't have to be Korra in general, but just maybe through the seasons. Yeah, so I would say in season one, we first meet her. She's this chaotic good character in the sense that she doesn't really respect authority. Right. She has troubles with the law. She's destructive. She does good things in that process, but still ruins a lot of a lot of things. So she's she's chaotic good for sure. Season one. Right. As it's funny because as the Avatar, right, we expect them to be a true neutral, and Korra, I feel like she never gets there. But I think that's the thing that no Avatar ever gets to is to hit a true neutral yeah, because they're, they're people always, they're people and i think too like ang really brought out the sensitivity that avatars right. have they're very like emotionally connected to people and they they do good things so avatars can't can never be like a true neutral force right yeah and i feel like Korra though as like the avatar would fall under like a neutral good so she's near the true neutral but she's more of a neutral good i agree yeah and then i think you know, maybe like season three, Cora, when she's a little out of her, not like rebellious side, but more like understanding things, understanding the world, she becomes more of a lawful neutral. And that may be a little, you know, uh, some people may it's not agree. Arguable. It's, it's arguable. It's arguable. But I think season three, lawful neutral for Cora is, is pretty she dips i think i think she tends to really roam through that category in season right because you know um in season three she fights zaheer right and zaheer makes some points and also the people around in bossing say make cora realize certain things right when she's helping the queen get her gold um they tell her you're helping the wrong side avatar right you're helping the wrong people and Korra, like it kind of hits her she's like i have a feeling they're right but she still goes and upholds these oppressive uh systems yeah she she upholds those authority figures that are pretty bad so in a way she's kind of an awful neutral lawful neutral because She's not necessarily good, but she stands by what she believes, right? May fit the rules. Yeah, she's she's defending things that are going to go and help her out in the end. And that is pleasing the little upper, you know, upper class, more elite members of society, which yeah. it can be seen as terrible to some of like, the people that are down at the bottom. Yeah, she follows the law and the rules that she feels are valid, are good to have. So that's why I would place season three Korra in the lawful neutral 
Um, so moving on from Korra, we're going on to our next character, next protagonist, For and sure. it is my favorite, Lin <laughs> Beifong. Yes, his favorite character, yes. Miss Lin Beifong. You're talking to her. I'm Chief Beifong, the milf of TikTok. Yeah, I didn't know she was a milf of TikTok. I had no idea. I just don't see yeah, her as motherly. No. <laughs> I know, but people just have their things you know and we cannot judge <laughs> yeah i don't judge but it's interesting so cool lynn lynn Beifong, you know is the police chief the metal police chief in republic city daughter of soft Beifong, sister of suyin Beifong. she's probably one of my favorite characters because i think she's such a good staple character in the sense that she's she's a guidance she's a really big guidance figure a lot like tenzin to Korra. And she really reminds me of almost like this textbook Virgo. I'm a Virgo. Yes, Virgo. Um, rising a sun. Shout out. <laughs> but yeah, super organized and just an analytical person. They're very stock with their thinking. They respect rules to an extent. And just kind of the gist of Lynn. She's like a wall. She she's very, very sturdy. And I respect that. Yeah. Lynn in the beginning, yeah, she's, she's very hot-headed she's kind of very similar to to Korra in that sense even Tenzin points it out you know yeah she has an attitude Tenzin like. points it out and it's like you you would like Korra if you just gave her a chance you know but Lynn straight up jumped into Korra and been like I don't like you because you're the avatar but yeah. that's like as yeah her bias Lynn's just being right and it makes no sense too because from what we know Lynn <laughs> had a good connection with Aang. She really got along with Aang. And so it's like, why are you hating Korra? But also Korra was tough to deal with. She had an attitude as well when they first met. So I don't fully blame her. She just saw her as another reckless teenager. And that's kind of what she is. Yeah. But yeah, I think Lin too just really dislikes any personal connection ranging from obviously Tenzin and Korra and her, even her own sister. She doesn't really... Yeah, Tenzin's her ex. That makes sense. But <laughs> she doesn't even like her own right. sister. Like, come on. Which is so weird. And she really doesn't care about her really strong Beifon line- lineage. She doesn't care that she's Top's daughter. Right. She's like, okay, cool. I'm Top's daughter. That's that's another thing, too. But she's, she's here to serve the police force. She's here to serve Republic City. She's here to follow the law, implement the law. Very orthodox fashion person. But I do notice that she tends to construe you know she breaks through these orthodox fashions when it comes to being morally correct like breaking the law when she's freeing Korra's friends from jail in season one and just really using her military powers in favor of um of doing quote-unquote the right thing right but she you also can't blame her right for not liking her sister not liking her mom because in the flashbacks that we get from uh lynn's story right you know suyin is kind of (laughs) annoying i mean i think personally i don't really like suyin i think opal's mean too opal's mean opal's mean too (laughs) but suyin suyin was not she was kind of like a well i'm gonna do whatever i want and they were both fighting for Toph's attention and Toph just wasn't the best mother so i don't I don't yeah, I don't blame, blame her for for being this way, but I'm glad she learned to go through it and deal with her traumas, right? Even though it took her a long time and she constantly resisted, kind of like Cora in a sense. They always resisted she, she a lot learning like the lessons they needed to learn, except Lynn was more aggressive with it. You know, she was more like 
uh, no, 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 change, 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 right? I have a right to be mad. And Cora was more just afraid. She was afraid. She felt fear. And yeah, um, for she sure. didn't understand why things were happening to her. So that's kind of like the difference they hold. But they're pretty similar in that way. And by season four, Lin deals with, uh, or season three, actually, she makes amends with with Su Yin and then by season four she makes yeah. slight amends with Toph and we see a more loving side of Lin after her acupuncture. Yeah. Um, good for her. She yeah. Yeah, she's a lot more loving and I, I love Lin in her more loving self. She's favorite yeah, character. Yeah, I think she's she's a pretty good staple character. Right. So if we were to place her into the nine alignments. Um I think we can both agree that Lin Definitely would fall agree. under a lawful good. Yeah, she's such um, a lawfully good character. Authority figure. She's authority figure's over Authority, figure, authority figure, but she tries to do the good thing and, you know, she goes against the laws, like Yes said, to help her friends, right? She sacrificed her bending, which I think was one of the most saddest scenes in the show where oh, she yeah, sacrificed her bending to save the airbenders. Yeah. And they still get caught. Oh, man. Oh, that was, dang it. That was a good scene. <laughs> that was a good scene. Yeah, I think but, Lynn just... Yeah. She's here to save the day, and I think that's really cool. Right. Yeah, Lynn Bayfall. Um, so we're going on to the next character, next protagonist. One of my favorite characters, honestly. Yeah. Very underrated. I don't know why people <laughs> don't like him. Mr. Varric. Wow, these characters don't have a lot of last names. I think it's just the Bayfongs and the Satos that have last names. Yeah, but- I don't really know anybody else's last name <laughs> <laughs> yeah they don't have last like, I don't names. know Cora's last name I don't think they could come up with one that's probably why oh, that um, makes sense, but yeah so Varric Varric who's Varric Varric is a water tribe um, resident he's not a bender but he's a genius um, he is to me the equivalent of Tony Stark he's cocky uh, he's a genius like a literal genius he is the reason why things have progressed uh you know in technology in that in that era um but he's also considered a war criminal because he sells to both sides of a war you know as long as it makes him money he does not care what he's doing i mean he even told asami (laughs) to um you know to save her company to sell and you know the war was gonna help them sell so he definitely instigated a war which is not the best um it's not the most you know proper thing to do or <laughs> anybody but very blowing up your own southern water <laughs> tribe your own home like why would you do right. that dude yeah oh Varric. but Varric really does yeah it really reminds me of like this con man entrepreneur type of guy he's like has so much power has so much genius he has a lot of money and he can do some really great things and he does some great things he makes some great inventions inventions help people live you know he reminds me of kind of like that um egotistical guy or the egoism in society and how a lot of people are very in it for themselves very just in it for himself capitalism yeah he's like capitalism's finest he he invented (laughs) movers you know which is the equivalent of movies if you haven't seen the show yeah he he invented movers which is iconic we love Varric for that and honestly his character does have a slight development story it's not very big but he does change little by little you know i think Varric will always be a person that does things for himself but he starts changing you know his morals the way he views things so you know i think in season four 
Um, what season three he goes to jail, I believe. Um, and he breaks out after no season two he breaks yeah, out of jail two. with Julie. Season three he's at the Bayfongs, you know he's in Zhao Fu just inventing things. Yeah, like he went from but prison to four- is like being the head of what at Zhao Fu? Like this guy's a genius. Yeah, he's yeah he's inventing things for them, which is pretty cool. And by season four, he he changes his morals. He's helping Kuvira restore, you know, um, the Earth Kingdom, helping them with food, water, and energy, renewable energy source, which he finds through a spirit vine. But when he realizes that this spirit vine energy is a weapon of mass destruction, he, you know, old Varric would have been like, sell it, yeah, you know, like, sell I it. know exactly <laughs> how to market this. But, you know, he chooses better. Quote unquote better from yeah. whoever assumes that's better, right? He chooses not to allow anyone to use it, not even Kavira, because I think he kind of suspected that Kavira was, you know, a little cuckoo. I think he knew and it was like it wanted was power. Kavira bad, right? <laughs> yeah, so he keeps it and he even tries, he nearly kills himself trying to save the vine to not, you know, land in the hands of them. Yeah, you know, for sure. he does good he stands by team avatar he stops kavira so he he does good things and you know in the comics from what i've read he he stops being so you know in it for the capitalistic money money doesn't really matter to him as much anymore by the time and he you know uh, marries his assistant julie who's another daddy who you know developed she was like i'm not gonna take your you know anymore i don't know if we can cuss on here um yeah good for her yeah for and her. she <laughs> tells him no i'm your equal i'm just as good as you and she proves him right like in the comics she becomes president and he supports her like a loyal husband and just helps her campaign and everything and they're so cute we ship it we ship varic and julie yep. it's power gets to your head eventually and who knows what clicked in varic's mind but Homeboy change. Oh, actually, I think it was almost losing Julie that Loki really? changed oh, I didn't... his views. But he also still didn't see Julie like that. I don't know. He's confusing. Who knows what clicked in Varric's yeah, genius mind, know. but something changed yeah. and he became a better person. I know. It's not like me, right? Usually I look at a project like this and all I think is, wow, I can make a ton of money off this. But recently I've been having these strange feelings inside. It's like I'm concerned with others and there's this nagging voice in my head constantly telling me what's right from wrong i believe that voice is your conscience sir. we appreciate him because he was a great character had the potential of a great villain but still yeah but he didn't but he, he didn't, didn't become a villain yeah. and that's what makes it yep, great we love to see it so if we were to throw him in a little box <laughs> in the little if we were to place these characters into boxes and label them <laughs> Yeah, right? So, ex- no, not exclusive. <laughs> um, where would we put him? I think, I don't know. I think beginning Varric would probably be a neutral evil for me. I think for sure. he didn't care whether it was good or bad. He just cared about money um, and himself. And himself. <laughs> right, yeah, but what he did was still pretty evil in yeah. my book. I mean, he started a war and he kept it going. And then he tried kidnapping the i think it was like the i don't know he's not really a president but he's like the head figure the head chief of the water tribe um yeah, I would and say chief right yeah and he even tried kidnapping the president so 
Honestly, he did Sorry some evil that. things, so so I think he would fall perfectly under new, neutral evil. Yeah, and I think he bounces up and uh, during his redemption, neutral good. He's neutral good in season four because, again, he continues to really satisfy himself and he pleases himself with what he does and his geniusness, but then he goes on the good side, right? He goes and he helps fight with Korra, so that's that's where he goes with neutral good. All right, so now we're going to shift into my favorite part, honestly, which is the antagonist. So first of all, you know, creator Brian Konietzko wrote in a 2020 interview he did with Matt Patches on the challenges that the creators faced in writing antagonists. So Konietzko was actually heavily swayed by Miyazaki's film Princess Mononoke, and because he described the film as lacking villains, but rather having individuals with different intentions. So Konietzko actually said, quote unquote, I think a big part of our creative point of view is to explore the gray areas in everything, especially with our villains. So much like our protagonists, the antagonists of Legend of Korra remain morally gray, you know, meaning their motives and desires don't always go with what they believe is right. So the first antagonist that we want to talk about is season one, Amon, and also Yez's favorite yes. villain. Yeah. <laughs> I love this character. <laughs> so take it away, Yez. I don't like what he does, but yeah, I love Amon. Just a really quick recap because he's so like allegorical and holds so many historical illusions of like of bad leaders essentially and we're gonna buckle up dweebs we're gonna get really into us because i'm so excited yes, i'm such a is. little history dweeb too so amon also known as noah talk he's the son of yukon and the brother of tarlac so if you didn't know that family were southern water tribe and um waterbenders and they were very prestigious bloodbenders which is so interesting, and basically Yukon becomes a bad guy, ends up getting his bending taken away, which kind of births this kind of hate of Bender just for Amon, but is also kind of reminiscent of a person who hates themselves, because he, he does, he hates his own people, Amon's a Bender, and he wants to get rid of bending. And just a little background of Amon, um, when he was growing up, his father was really ruthless, he was a ruthless guy, he was pretty abusive when it came to training him. He made him bloodbend and hurt Tarlock, which really enrages him and makes him just run away. And I think this too really makes him kind of spew this little, the start of hating, of just hating Benders. Right. Because of, to, Benders to Amon is, are these guys that are just like his father. They're people who are abusive, you know, they're greedy, they're power hungry, and they're competitive. And he just, he doesn't like that. And Which is so ironic, right? Yeah, because for sure. he is blood bending away people's bending. Yes. Um and he proves his own point that, you know, benders when, you know, have some crazy motives, they can be very dangerous and can hurt others. Um, just the way he does in season one as the villain, right? He takes for people's sure. blood yep. bending away and he takes advantage of people's beliefs that equality between benders and non-benders exists yeah i think he's such a manipulative force and that's what makes him such a crazy leader and it just makes you kind of think of like real you know and i say this kind of like loosely but real life you know bad guys criminals you know these 
killers all these people who do bad things and it's like well why do they why do they do bad things it's how they were raised you know are they inherently bad it just goes back and forth and i think amon is just like the guy to really describe like who these people are and amon also thinks that bending is the cause of disruption he thinks it causes war and suffering which is kind of interesting because it it can be true you know bending was the reason why hundred year war started right and why a lot of our characters like sato's wife and mako and bolin's mom are are dead it's because you know benders went out and killed them so i think too that tarlock tends to be a huge contribution to this corruption of bending in government and how like one one apple can really spoil the bunch because we see tarlock coming from the same family as amon and being just this bad guy and taking advantage of benders he goes and he ruthlessly forms this task force to go and infiltrate you know these equalists who are probably minding their own business who don't know Amon's motive yet and he just demolishes it right and the crazy thing too is that you know I don't know this is this may just be my opinion but I feel like the equalists had valid points you know and we can easily see um that even when Korra right she's in the park um and she sees the guy who's announcing, you know, equalist, equalist, you know, he's like yeah, the guy at hanging the out the flyers and stuff. And he's like, you know, uh, Bender's oppress people. And Cora's like, I'm not oppressing anyone, right? And then she like bends at him. And, yeah, uses her bending right? to oppress him. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, it wasn't really oppressing, but it still bullies yeah, him, right? But yeah, just bullies and, him. And it's like, well, you know, he, you literally proved his point right there. And then with the triple tread triads and. Um, also when Cora comes into town and she destroys people's properties, who's for paying sure. for that damage, right? And it's, it's just, the non-benders usually. <laughs> exactly. And so I kind of understand where the non-benders are coming from. It reminds me of that whole, you know, equality, um, justice, right? Um, the way non-benders are treated is so unfair. Yeah. But we have to remember that Amon is separate from the Equalist. He may be the one who started the Equalist movement, but he took advantage of people's want and desire for justice um, when he didn't stand by that. I mean, I think it's very clear, if it isn't, you know, obvious, that Amon's purpose wasn't to build equality. He was to get rid. Yeah, it's so, so important to note, you guys, that, like, not all of Amon's followers were, like, these inherently bad people. And, you know, we see this with that spokesperson in season one, and we see this with, like, the guy who rats out Sato's involvement with, um, you know, the chi-blocking gloves, and he says you know, I didn't sign up for this war. I didn't want war. I just wanted equality. And this is so real. And it's like that with a lot of um, a little bit more intense and even some extremist groups, right or left. I'm not going to get into that, but it's like these, you get a group of people who are inherently confused. They are fed in misinformation. They are fed so much like fearful, like situations and ideas and ideologies because of their social situations, because they're kind of left behind in society. And bad guys like Amon and other worldly leaders go and they totally take advantage and they extort these people's fears and beliefs. Yeah, we could even see it with his right-hand man, right? The guy with the mask and the two electrical sticks. I actually, I don't think we ever learned his name. Yeah, he's just the guy. (laughs) he faces Korra a lot. And when the moment, I think it was a scene in season one where he bloodbends Korra and bloodbends Mako and then takes away Korra's bending... 
the guy sees what he does and he's like you're a bloodbender like you lied to us this isn't the point of the cause right and or when amon's exposed as a bender as a waterbender and comes out from the water yeah, and people these people see, are hey, so you're a upset bender. they're so mad. they're betrayed right yeah because that wasn't the point of the movement the movement was yeah. to bloodbend people's things away especially because bloodbending is totally illegal um yeah and and they just felt betrayed so we can see that you know amon was not the equalist movement and the equalist movement was not amon yeah at the end of the for sure the day. he I was think, just a villain with revenge problems yeah <laughs> for sure and i think it's really cool to note that amon hates this really big mass publicity of consumerism and bending like he hates he absolutely hates the idolization of benders which we kind of see mirrors um celebrity culture in america he hates the rich and famous because you know rich and famous tend to do pretty bad things and and the avatar society it's like benders kind of represent those people and you know in this in this world of bending mixed with like this mass consumerism is consumerism sorry and kind of profiting off bending it kind of teaches us that capitalism and those very egotistical ways and very individualist ways will start to breed bad guys they they make bad guys is what it does because it's so competitive and it's it's such a huge contributor to why Amon was and why so many of these villains we're going to dig into are like are standing today. Yeah. So, um, so if we were to place Amon into the nine alignments chart, um, we feel that, you know, Amon would perfectly fit under lawful evil um, because one, his actions were very, you know, evil. Evil. <laughs> I would hope that everybody agrees that this guy is a pretty good yeah, guy. Yeah, and, um, but he also still followed the law. You know, he didn't want chaos. He didn't want... His goal, I um, think, even though he didn't truly want equality, his supporters was were, like, so, so engaged with him and believed that benders and non-benders could be on the same level. And that's what makes him, I think, lawfully. And I think, too, Amon is kind of like this allegorical truth that you know, the mass consumerism and profiting off social status um, basically will go and display so many in his aftermath. And he did that through a lot of legal procedures like organizing groups, organizing, you know, just a mass following, and it kind of went downhill. I agree. So Amon, lawfully evil villain, but also a really great villain. It definitely shows us something that we see in our day-to-day, right? It's a it fits well with in real life um, situations and movements and people who just take advantage of a cause, right? I feel like there's a lot of causes in our world that are valid. They fight for justice. They fight for social justice, you know, equity, equality. But there's always that one person that takes over and uses it to their gain, their advantage, and makes the movements look bad, makes these points seem wrong and then gives other people an excuse to say no this is a horrible cause i'm not going to support you and whatever and this and that when in reality they they just wanted something that someone else took advantage of and this leads us to uh, another villain who was who personally i think was one of the most well-written villains in the Legend of Korra, and you know you don't have to agree with me, but you don't have to we agree with me. Or yes, that but he's 
one one Hall's very one, complex. One character, so he's he's it's because I think what makes him so well is that he's very complex, right? So if you don't know who we're talking about, we're talking about Zaheer. We totally skipped Unalak season two because Unalak is just a little crazy. Yeah, crazy. Unalak's just a bad he guy. He's just very <laughs> power hungry. He had some points too, but you know. I think Zaheer takes the crown on he being takes a our breath away. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> he takes our yeah, breath away. Exactly, like the queen. So basically who Zaheer was, Zaheer was a very bad guy who I think his entire mission, his entire life was to get rid of political figures or people in mass power, right? So the Avatar was one of the reasons why he was locked up in one of the four most protected prisons. So um, he didn't have bending powers, though. He was a non-bender. But the yeah. fact that he was a non-bender at that moment before we met him, right, and was still so threatening to the world that he was locked up in such a high-security prison is insane and should already tell you how great of a villain he is. But basically, when we meet Zaheer, he's on a boat, and he gets airbending when and he gets airbending through the harmonic convergence that happened in season two where Korra opens the spirit portals and airbenders come about once again so he got lucky got airbending and breaks free right and his one mission was to get rid of the avatar once and for all because to Zaheer he didn't believe in people having more power than others he didn't believe in class he didn't believe in that hierarchy right he wanted a free-for-all he He wanted wanted... just a truly liberated society with zero authority figures and zero social structures yeah in a way he was like an anarchist right he uh just wanted people to govern their own selves he wanted people to be not so attached to materialism but more spiritually as well you know he didn't want people to be oppressed anymore he was for the for the people in a way so it kind of complicates things when looking at him as a villain because you're like whoa you know he's kind of right the queen was greedy she hated her people held the gold for herself never fed her people bossing say was a perfect example of class structures especially in our day-to-day they had the the outer yeah. ring right where it smelled awful according to team yeah, Avatar. it was basically like the lowest of the lowest is who right. lived in the outer ring yeah and then it went to the it built in towards um the middle where the queen stood so did he have valid points so i think it's so interesting how zaheer is like considered the liberator he's considered like the one who freed Bossing set, which I'll get into a little history because I'm going to do about right now. Um, so he believes in the way of the airbenders who a lot resemble, you know, Buddhist monks. And Buddhist monks believe in absolutely no fixed social structures. They believe in the true liberation of the spirit and the abandonment of materialistic goods. And that's basically Zaheer's character in a nutshell. He is, I think, probably the best written character because of that complexity and how he really resembles um, the the more left behind and more traditional culture of of you know of Buddhist monks in a way and like the Airbenders and it's so cool because Ba Sing Se so much it heavily resembles the Republic of China in the sense of its heavily associated association with totalitarianism and really strict censorship policies and a classist government and Zahir hates that. He hates it, and he achieves his goal. He kills the queen, but I think the downfall is that you liberate all these people. You know, you release the chickens from the coop, 
and now they're just they're running around and their heads are chopped off and it's when you want to become this revolutionary figure in society and you want to start a movement it doesn't work out because people need people need structure and he believes that nobody needs structure but that's not true to everybody so in a in a way he's so interesting because he believes in a more spiritual side and he falls within the more spiritual side of the binary and he doesn't like materialism and he doesn't like a lot of bad things associated with materialism but at the same time he is the reason why boxing stands on fire right that's not a good thing it's also it's also interesting because i feel like the other reason that makes you know him be considered the villain is that he's he doesn't he murders people so like for sure without remorse right because to him it's the right thing to do but at the same time i feel like that's not really our place right you shouldn't be able to decide who lives who dies in a way that's him putting himself above other people as well Uh, going toward against what he believes no superiority right yeah like everyone should be on an evil equal playing ground he doesn't believe in law but then he decides to dictate these laws which you know totally go behind or against his belief and right. again he kills people like you're not supposed to be killing people i would yeah. love that <laughs> yeah so it's i don't know i feel like at the end of the day though though i appreciate uh zahir's character because there's no other villain in this storyline or even any of the avatar universe right that easily makes the people who were rooting for put the protagonist right so in this case team team avatar um look like the villains right because if you look at it from that perspective um Cora and her team are like upholding these oppressive governments right they're upholding the president they're upholding what makes them comfortable as well because they're not affected by these oppressive systems they are not starving they're not you know under these laws as much as other people so they you know want to help the queen save the queen save the oligarchy so it kind of makes you question yourself like why am i agreeing with the villain yeah. am i a bad person yeah for sure. um and so you start to force yourself to agree with the protagonist like no this is right this is the right way right but i feel like at the end of the day there is yeah. no none of them were right none of them were wrong yeah who who dictates right or wrong like but they made their points they all had points but i feel also at the end of the day is here may have had some valid points but his actions were what i personally wouldn't agree with wouldn't agree with yeah for sure he had a good idea but the execution was not (laughs) right it kind of reminds me of like in real life right you know um i don't know from what i've learned in history from what i've been taught by parents and reading and stuff he kind of reminds me of fidel castro um and people may not agree with this but fidel castro is one of the people in our lives are a politician right who some people love and some people really hate right um yeah. and his his original plan was equality right he hated the oppression of the lower class he hated that the lower class didn't have fair education fair like would starve right in cuba so he wanted to change that but once he gained power you know some people may not have agreed with his actions right he murdered people he tortured people he made people flee and people weren't allowed back into their country people are scared and they right they lost they lost with that so in a way like his his motives like his intentions were in the right place but his actions may not always be seen as right either they may have become more oppressive to some people 
Yeah. So, you know, that's more of a controversial topic as well. Some people may agree, some people will not, but... Yeah, for sure. And you guys don't have to agree entirely, but this is our interpretation. And I, too, want to dabble with that because, like, I'm not too familiar with... um. I don't want to dive into that topic because I'm not too familiar with it, but I see a lot of this with youth culture and Stalinism and with Joseph Stalin, right, as a, as a dictator. And, you know, he was the same thing. He hated capitalism, was, you know, believed in liberation of people. He believed that everybody should be equal and he should, you know, uphold this sort of Marxism theory that, you know, Fidel also loved. But unfortunately, power got to him and it just totally... it killed so many people it tanked um the ussr's economy and a lot of people in right now i see all over twitter really love this guy and i'm not a big fan of that and again my personal beliefs but definitely do your guys' history and you'll see what makes these villains so interesting to look at and it's like so so much of like an allusion to history and world history yeah so Zaheer, well written, eleven ten, definitely the best season, yeah. and also the villain who helped Cora grow the most, right? He sure, opened he up really Cora's eyes to a lot, not only because he nearly killed her, but also because he helped her gain her spiritual side, yes, like open her yeah. spiritual side. Yeah, I think Zaheer's trauma on Cora helped Cora develop her character so much and which is weird to say because again he did something so bad but really helped Cora out yeah even after I think it was in season four right he he talks to her like we mentioned earlier and helps her reconnect with the spiritual side because she can't world right right she can't go into the spirit world and it's like you ruined that for me and he was like I didn't do anything like I'm I reach right I reach my spiritual self and now I'm tied up in chains and now you're free but you're holding yourself back through fear which is honestly something that a lot of us may relate to. Yeah, I think we need to give Zaheer credit for being such a guy who believes in the liberation of somebody's spirit, and he was so spiritually knowledge. Like, this dude was one of the only flying airbenders. Right, in a long time. Yeah. Um, But that leads us to... Throw him in a box. Season four. (laughs) We have to throw him in a box. Oh, right, to put him in a box. So if we were to put Zaheer in a box... Uh, Yeah. (laughs) where would you put him i think he's hands down chaotic evil because he just believes in the true liberation and this anarchist view of everybody minding their own business and just being a chicken with their head cut off so i'll put him in that box so i guess we'll place zaheer under a more chaotic evil box um again you don't have to agree but that's kind of just where we are placing him based on how he was written yeah so Moving on to our final antagonist, and one that me and Yes both don't understand the hype around. I don't understand the hype with her. I'm kind of scared of her. <laughs> I understand her, her talents, but I still don't get it very much. Um, we have Kuvira. I feel like if you're listening to this and you don't agree with me not understanding the hype, I apologize. <laughs> we're gonna upset a lot of people who listen to this but we're about um, to get crucified because we're gonna just be into kavira <laughs> yeah we're just we don't get her but kavira she the first time we meet her we meet her in season three and she is the right hand side to uh su yin's um 
I guess, like, warriors, right? They're the protectors of the security of Zhao Fu, and she's, like, the leader. And she's very sweet, so it very it confused me why we saw such a dark side of her in season four, but yeah. she is the adopted daughter of Su Yin Beifong, so she's officially, unofficially a Beifong. A Beifong. Yeah. And, and like, in, indirectly a Beifong. But in season four, uh, she is... The person who takes charge of rebuilding the Earth Kingdom, right? So she created this plan to go around and help the Earth Kingdom after Zaheer murders their queen. Yeah, she gives them their home back, essentially, after it's been totally burned down by Zaheer, so. But we see that some of the ways she does this is very manipulative. You know, she threatens people. There's that one scene where she has people on the metal rails threatening to have the metal train run over them if they don't bow down to her which is kind of crazy and it's kind of weird how she becomes so different compared to how we see her in the earlier season yeah like what made her tick right you know and i think it has a lot to do with how because like we don't really know kavir's past as long as we we can make some assumptions that it was terrible right which, again, it goes back to that idea of, like, are people inherently bad or are they raised in situations where they are bad? And, I mean, let's be honest, the Beifongs weren't the nicest people, specifically Suyin. And I think Opal, I think in the comics, um, as I was doing research, because I don't read the comics, but Opal calls her, like, a stray dog. Yeah. And I'm just like, whoa. The comics um, actually go deeper into... Um Kuvira's past they don't show you her past as in in her family before she was adopted by Su Yin but Su Yin definitely takes her in after her father drops her off at the Beifongs because Kuvira nearly kills her mother when she metal banded um I don't know in some situation and her father just wasn't gonna take it but we see that Kuvira is a hothead she also is a hothead she has anger issues yeah. and you know, she's just not the happiest. And we don't know where that comes from. Maybe it was a traumatic childhood. Maybe she wasn't loved very well. Who knows? Um, but she she's like that. And Su Yin sees it. But Su Yin sees potential in her. So Su Yin becomes her mother. You know, she takes her in. She loves her. She shows her the ways. But, you know, not everyone in the Beifong family was very happy with that. Opal was mean to her. Didn't let her play with her dolls, which honestly crosses the line. Last, that's the last straw. That's inexcusable. That's so rude. As honestly, a child, honestly, I used to love Opal in yeah. the show, but when yeah. I read the comics, I was just like, I don't know if I really like Opal. Yeah, that's crazy because I also had a respect for Suyin and Opal because I'm like, oh, they're really you know sweet and, and adoring, but oh god, I guess not. Yeah, right. So you know, we see where Kuvira might have these like problems, right? And when Su Yin doesn't agree to help the Earth Kingdom, which is something people most expected because Su Yin was such an influential person in the Earth Nation, right? She Kuvira gets upset with her. Like, how can you betray your own people? And Su Yin's like, it's not our place. So Kuvira takes over and I don't know, I feel like Kuvira's point, the reason why she was doing all this is because she loves her people. Yeah, she loves the Earth Kingdom. Yeah, and she feels like they were robbed because if we go back to what Aang and Zuko did uh, once, you know, um, Zuko became the Fire Lord, is that they tried to get um, the Fire Nation 
out of the colonies that they colonized, right? Out of the areas they colonized and give the land back to certain people. But they didn't know how to do that with a lot of parts of the Earth Nation, which were heavily colonized by the yeah. Fire Nation. So they turned it into Republic City. Kavira was one of the people that didn't like that. But I think it went downhill when the power kind of got to her head. And I think Kavira... She tends to be a person that, you know, it's her way or the highway, which is why some people think Kovira is, like, very similar to Korra. Yeah, I agree entirely. I think the rapid political traction and involvement and sort of authority that Kovira really ended up gaining just made her take it a little too far. It's like she reminds me of just she would rather be feared than respected and loved yeah that's true when she's feared she will get her way and her way is taking back the earth kingdom and really dominating society with the power she has and the sort of motives and she is a scary figure so nobody's going to challenge her even Cora was scared of her so it really shows you how she's scary (laughs) yeah it's crazy. We could also see that um, when, right, she was dating Batar, Batar Jr. And when he gets captured and sh- she finds out that he's in the building and he's like, don't do it, Kavira. Like, they have me. She's like, well, sorry. I loved you. Yeah, and she you still go. fires at she him. Just, like, how do you do she that? She just throws like, him away. She's like, mm, get a new one. <laughs> yeah, because you're right. She would rather be feared than loved. And so yeah. she would sacrifice anything that holds her back from this power, from being right. Yeah, it took a little bit, a little too far. Um, So if we were to put Kavira in the Nine Alignments chart, where would you um, put I her? I would yet? definitely put her in the uh, lawfully evil category because, again, she is such a strong authority figure she has the traction she needs as an authority figure and she's powerful because of it and she abuses that and she wants structure she wants this sort of very authoritative government you know governing according to her standards and it just makes her so so lawfully evil at the same time yep and that's why kuvira is I think a good villain. I think she wasn't a bad villain. Um, For sure. I think she's a, a hard follow-up to Sahir, but she was still a pretty good She's villain. a really well-developed villain, so we give her that. All right, so that wraps up our analysis of our protagonist and antagonist characters. So now we're going to move into more of like the story concept side of Legend of Korra. You know, it's no surprise that the Legend of Korra continued its Asian and indigenous cultures and philosophies that it started talking about and mentioning in um, Avatar The Last Airbender. But in Legend of Korra, I feel like they go less into what these cultures are, who they are, right? And now provide more insight on the evolution of bending, the Eastern and indigenous philosophies, how their governments work, right? And a grander look at Inuit culture. So we're going to dive into what the evolution of bending actually was in Legend of Korra. For sure. This is one of my favorite topics. Once again, I'm about a history geek out on this. So be prepared, dweebs. All right. So one of the most troubling and misconception um, misconceptions of Legend of Korra that I found was sort of this hate towards bending being this pastime. A lot of people, I think, were really critical on how Um, Bending almost became a sport and it's, you know, really idolized. I didn't really like that a lot because it's crazy. In the, in, sorry, in The Last Airbender, we saw 
firebenders with hide and explode, waterbenders had their ice sledding, and earthbenders had underground wrestling, and airbenders had airball. So it didn't really click to me why there's kind of a hate for um, this evolution of bending, but at the same time, it's so influential and so important to realize um, the overarching theme of why bending as an, an it's almost evolving and why that's so crucial to the environment of Legend of Korra. Especially because I think pro bending was one of the coolest things that Legend right? of Korra so could have cool. ever touched upon. Like, I wish we would have gotten more pro bending, not just like season one, but it was so awesome. I wish we would have dived more into it. Yeah, I dig it a lot. Anyways, the Legend of Korra was described as Asia meets 20s Manhattan. So the 20s was an age known for mass production, mass consumerism, um, social revolutions. And not only is the show aesthetically accurate, it really nailed a lot of the 20s aesthetic, but it's also so accurate when it comes to social issues that really birthed in the 20s that exist today. And I think the biggest point that Legend of Korra is making with bending is that bending is now commercialized, meaning that it's totally maxed out for profit. And it really introduces that concept of materialism against spiritualism and how bending sort of falls in the middle. Like, how are we supposed to acknowledge bending as a spiritual side and, a, you know, stay in touch with nature while being so commercialized? Yeah, so it's, it's not the idea that bending is implemented everywhere in society but as much as its growth to social status and it kind of gives these hierarchical beliefs that benders are these idols they're um, celebrities basically and i think pro bending is such a good example of sports of the modern world and how there's huge utilization of talent for other people's entertainment you know if you're a good athlete you're gonna have some fans basically is what i'm saying and it's so crazy to see that transition with pro bending and how pro benders are basically idols they're loved and we see mako bolin fangirls we see firefare fangirls and we see like core lookalikes in the crowd when they're watching the fire firefare it's seen or like yeah or even like asami right like asami yeah, the first asami. time she meets mako she hits him with his uh you know moped or something and then she's like wait you're mako oh, from the from fire, the fire fairs, right wait I, I recognize you you're mako right you play for the fire ferrets yeah that's me it's, and yep. she's like i am so embarrassed and then she like dates him yeah right and i think that had to do solely something with for it. yeah and then too they also strike up a huge sponsorship with sato industries they're the reason why right. they can compete and it's crazy how again pro bending and bending in general is starting to develop this social status and it's starting to become really exclusive in the workforce and how some jobs are held to only benders so we see this with the firebenders who are um what is it lightning, lightning benders. bending lightning bending lightning benders in the sato factories and then we see metal bending cops and we see soldiers who have certain bending techniques and, they're and really, the council yeah, that the decides council specifically, the rules are all benders. They're all benders. And there really isn't a job that a bender couldn't do that a non-bender could. And that's where a lot of tensions come up. And I think, too, positions when positions start becoming exclusive, they start to develop hierarchical positions. And we see this more commonly in our world with degrees. When you have a degree, you can go so many places and the people who don't right and it's like 
we see this so well when with vendors and an evolving society and how it really becomes um it, it can it contrasts extremely with the original use of bending and how it's supposed to be in touch with nature but now it's being totally maxed out for profit and becoming like a social status to become a bender right i feel like even at the end of the day though like even in avatar the last airbender benders were always seen as superior right i mean if we look back to the time where katara becomes the painted lady i think it was called um yeah people looked up to these figures right people who bended non-benders will look up to them and be like you are like a god right except that now they're completely profiting off of it and it's like you said more of a capitalistic type thing it starts really really taking a turn and it brings up the idea of like how do we live in a world that is so destined to advance technologically while still being in touch with that spiritual side and i think that's the bigger overarching theme of why the evolution of bending is so important in the legend of korra yeah so with that being said, we're going to dive into more of the Eastern philosophy of the Legend of Korra, as I think there's so, it's such a good look at um, the good and evil binary of the whole entire series. And we see this through Rava and Vatu, and this concept kind of can be compared to um, Taoism, and that's an ancient philosophy that emphasizes harmonious living and longevity with Tao or the Way. And Taoists also believe in yin and yang, and that's the concept of good and evil, you know, coexisting beside one another. And this can be seen through so many of the characters' problems, what they deal with, specifically Korra, because she's always choosing a side. She's always choosing a side, good and bad, you know, spiritualist, like, sorry, becoming more spiritualist, or, you know, kind of siding with the other people of the world. It really shows you and emphasizes how the characters are forced to really coexist with, you know, this evolving world, the spiritual world, and also their flaws and their strengths. And it's really interesting to look at, and it really transcribes through Taoism's yin and yang. And I think one of the more unexplained and unliked episodes of um, the Legend of Korra series was Avatar 1's upbringing. And I think this can totally be explained through the concept of Eastern philosophy. And when we look at Wan's world, it's described as, you know, desolate, it's very classist, it's very dark, it's very scary, very boring, drab, and scary because the lower class citizens totally lack a connection with nature, right? And the directors show us now that once Wan breaks free of this sort of lower class and restricting environment, and he bonds with nature, he's capable of doing anything he wants. He learns how to live with the way of nature while being this embodiment of humanity and it's so interesting why i think a lot of people don't understand those episodes is because they don't really understand um some sort of you know eastern philosophy and how they believe in such a spiritual tie to nature but it's so interesting the episodes are just a little creepy though so oh yeah i don't know i, I respect <laughs> it i think the what was it the the i i the lemur guy the lemur demon that is so scary. <laughs> I think too, when you look at like the color palette, it's such a drab color palette right. and it's so like scary. Even and the animation like, not style. Not as vibrant. It's very like cartoonish. Like it's very like drawn comic book type of stuff. Yeah, so I, t- I definitely agree that it could be scary. But I think it's more interesting because one was gifted fire as his first element 
and fire is an element heavily associated with humanity, creativity, and just mankind. And we see this in other work like The Jungle Book. I love The Jungle Book. <laughs> and yeah, we just see this sort of theme of humanity and mankind transcend through Juan and his journey of becoming one with nature. And one more interesting thing that I really dig about um, what Avatar Last Airbender didn't really get into was the idea of lion turtles. And I was super interested. I think those are so cool. But lion turtles kind of remain this ambiguous force in the Avatar franchise. Like, we don't really know where they come from. We just know that they give bending to people and they're pretty rad. <laughs> but there is definitely some truth behind the image. The world turtle is actually a theme of a giant turtle that holds the power of the world on its back. And this is seen through so many cultures, through the Chinese, the Lenape people of North America, the Hindi people of India. Yeah, even the indigenous people, um, some yeah. of their origin stories, you know, right? The turtle island is what they call it, um, that the world yeah. is like a turtle. So this is so common within other people's um, kind of traditional ideologies that I really dig. I think it's a really cool concept. But the Chinese also celebrate um, the dragon turtle, and that's a dragon-like turtle which represents this wisdom, fertility, success, and longevity, which is kind of like the lion turtle, which I think is super dope. And these turtles just are the coolest thing to me. I think they deserve a really good backstory when the creators further the further the series. Right, and I think it's really awesome that, you know, despite the show and this universe being, you know, more focused, more inspired by, like, uh, different Asian cultures and stuff, or, like, indigenous cultures, like the Inuit, right? Um, other people can still find little pieces of relatability through it, right? Like you said, the different cultures that have similar beliefs in the turtle, right? And what yeah, it represents. Definitely. So I think it's really cool. And that's similar with, like, the Inuit culture that is represented in the Avatar universe. And I think that's one of my favorite things about Avatar is because a lot of, you don't see a lot of indigenous representation, um, yeah, you know, on, in media. And the fact that they're the main thing, they're a whole element, right? We go into the, into the water tribe. Um, and I love that Legend of Korra goes deeper into how the water tribe works, their festivals, their culture, right? I know we see it in um, Avatar The Last Airbender, but Avatar The Last Airbender's focus is mainly the Fire Nation and the Earth Kingdom, um, while in Legend of Korra we get a whole season of just the Water Tribe and their governor, yeah. and it's really, really cool. Um, we see the similarities, right, with what Korra wears, what what they the do. The architecture, too, is really cool when you see, like... The architecture, the main buildings are, like, made out of ice, right? Um, the thing that Korra wears around her waist is animal skin, right? Her boots. Yeah, she has her pelts. Um, I love also the connection between, like, the spirit portal and the northern lights. Um, because, I don't know, if you guys have seen the movie uh, Brother Bear um the yeah, disney movie right they they look at the northern lights as spirits right your, your yeah. spirit goes into the northern lights and that's very connected to like the way it's represented in legend of Korra as well which i think is super super dope um if you're on tiktok if you're a part of the avatar fandom a lot of people from um the inuit uh tribes that reside in you know greenland um canada alaska areas right they see themselves reflected in this and it 
feels great to have, even if it's not like completely similar, completely accurate, you see yourself represented in a way. So, you know, there's some artists that I see on TikTok, on Instagram, on Twitter that redraw the Water Nation um, characters like Kaya and Korra with Inuit tattoos, right? Of course, these are Inuk artists who are doing this, only they should be allowed yeah. to do this, right? Um, but they redraw them with traditional tattoos, and it's super cool. Yeah, I think it's, like, the coolest thing, too, because obviously, like, we grew up, or I grew up seeing nothing but American media, so when you see something outside of American culture that's more driven to, you know, indigenous cultures, to Asian cultures, it's just so refreshing. And, like, me, I grew up watching avatar the last airbender and legend of korra like these released when i was a kid so it's just so impactful on my insight i was able to see all these different cultures at such a young age and it's like the coolest thing to see the inuit culture really being brought to life throughout the legend of korra yeah and at the end of the day you know the creators do say that nothing is super set in stone you're not going to see complete accuracy because every nation every character pulls from different you know uh cultures within but it's still said that it's Asian culture representation and Inuit culture representation. All right. So, dweebs, what we're saying is that The Legend of Korra isn't telling its audience to choose one binary over the other. They're not telling you to cho- choose altruism over egoism, spiritualism over materialism, or good over evil. And it really isn't telling its loyal Avatar fan base to forget about The Last Airbender and completely move away from the gang's little journeys and really fun adventures that we remember but what it is saying is to really celebrate our everlasting and this evolving society that we have to stay connected to and to also be spiritual while being in such a techno technologically advanced society and the only binary really that arguably really truly exists is good and evil and even then what is good and evil and there's really this brilliance of balance and this, this need to live in a balanced society that I think The Legend of Korra tells its audience and it conveys so perfectly. And there's just this, this underlying greatness that's found within the story's characters, the storylines, and just the adventurous plots, despite its sort of messy, sort of rushed storytelling, and of course it's undercut budget. But till now, The Legend of Korra, at I Nickelodeon. think... At <laughs> Nickelodeon. Definitely at Nickelodeon, but such a perfect time because they have nickelodeon studios so they have nickelodeon avatar studios. Studios. Oh, avatar whoops oops avatar studios <laughs> i'm so ready for that the creators mentioned that avatar studios is going to be you know continuation stories or and new stories of what's going on in the avatar universe so i'm just crossing my fingers we get some kiyoshi stories um we get more korasami stories hopefully now we won't have it censored at nickelodeon again we need Justice for Korasami, um, they were such a cute couple, and we deserved more on-screen time. It gets so much hate for no reason. Exactly. Like, uh, there's exactly. reasons why people hate it. We know why there's one reason why people don't like these seven yeah. stories, but... We're not gonna name names. <laughs> we're not gonna name reasons or names, but... Names. Yeah, this yeah, is so great. Essentially. And super excited for that. But that is all we have time for today, and thank you for joining our podcast We hope that you guys enjoyed our, you know, little analysis and opinions and hopefully you guys can agree with some 
or not. And if you do or you don't, let us know. Follow our social media at Pull Up Dweeb on Instagram and Pull Up Dweeb on Twitter. But we will double check. Yeah, we'll we link it in the bio. Has S or not. So we will link <laughs> it in the bio. We will for um, sure. You know, keep sharing. We'll keep posting. We'll keep you guys updated for our next episode, which will focus on one of our favorite films. And hopefully, you guys will stick around. And if you guys have an idea what film we could do, we'd love that. Yeah, we love <laughs> suggestions. Definitely let us know. Yeah. So just let so us know what you thought. And um, we hope you dweebs enjoyed the ride. And yeah, we will see you that's it for today. next time. Thank you for joining. All right. Bye, you guys. <laughs>